Hi there, friend. My name is John Werner. I used to be a part of the largest cult in the United States. After studying the Bible, Christian history, and ministry, I set my sights on confronting the problematic nature of white evangelicalism in the United States. In 2019, I published my first book as a first step in addressing the subtle issues of this complex system. This podcast will continue that work under the same title. Welcome to The Cult of Christianity. Is Christianity a cult? It would be very off-brand for me to say anything other than yes. My book has sold dozens of copies to a handful of friends and has been collecting dust on the shelves of America. Um, Even so, I viewed the book as an introduction to an opinion. Many atheists have hurled the term cult as an insult to our Christian friends and family. Um, And even millions of Christians have been willing to openly critique the many problems in these communities. I do not want to contain myself to bitter echo chambers and regurgitate tired old zingers um, towards those with faith. Instead, I like to look at myself as a problem solver and a truth seeker. Um, The facts are that the white evangelical church in the United States is problematic, enough so um, that labeling it as a cult is worth doing. Not for the hundreds of dollars I have made saying it, but because all functional definitions make the faith and the slur synonymous. Um, Speaking of definitions, there is precedent to establish those before diving too far into any topic. A typical dictionary definition of the word cult sounds something like this. A collection of people that believe they are required to submit lifelong unwavering devotion to a person, a type of person, an object, or a set of ideologies. And fair enough, this definition seems to describe the nuts and bolts of the structure of the cult. In classic um, dictionary fashion, it stays fairly neutral and uninflammatory. However, stripping words of their connotations can be um, barbaric sometimes. When, With this as a working definition, you could plug in rather wholesome ideologies and take the power away from the word. Uh, if I claim to be a part of a collection of people that submitted their life to the ideology of spreading love throughout the universe, I think few would say I am part of a cult. Maybe the bitter old dinosaurs would call me a hippie or a liberal, but dinosaurs are less scary when they are on their way to extinction. The general populace is not offended by people who strive to be loving, so we're left with two options here. We can find that the term cult is an acceptable term because all humans inevitably dedicate their lives to something. Further, we could say that nothing is in a vacuum and we stand in the middle of several Venn diagrams, each circle being an ideological community, and that we uh, season our own beliefs with our own kinds of flavors. But to me, that sounds rather boring. Um, We need words in our languages with negative connotations. Slurs can even serve a progressive purpose, um, minus the the prejudice ones, of course, but I, I find it better to attach asterisks and footnotes to generalizations rather than aiming to review each individual instance of belief. And uh, I'm sure I'll be misunderstood here. Uh, I want it to be known that I'm a Taurus, uh, Enneagram 4. My highest strength quest score was in the individualization column. And uh, one of my favorite quotes of all time is by George Carlin. He says, quote, People are wonderful. I love individuals. I hate groups 
of people. I hate a group of people with a common purpose because pretty soon they have little hats and armbands and fight songs and a list of people they are going to visit at 3 a.m. So I dislike and despise groups of people, but I love individuals. Every person you look at, you can see the universe in their eyes if you're really looking. It is because the individual is so important to me that I think some words need to be harsher than others. I do not want individuals to get lost in conglomerates of nonsense designed purposely or incidentally to benefit some at the cost of many. In order to describe these structures, we are going to have to find words that are not warm and fuzzy, so it is with all arrogance that I reject the dictionary definition of the word cult. In the very subtitle of my book, I chose to define cults by three main alliterative characteristics. Cults control, contain, and convert. I could continue to define these three words, but then this podcast would essentially become an audiobook. The markers of a cult are not merely groups of people with some shared sense of value. Cults have a clear split between leaders and followers. The leaders control and manipulate their adherents, contain those adherents to a particular worldview, then expect those people to go tell it on the mountain. And most Americans probably associate the word cult with um, historical instances, such as Waco or the Manson family. Perhaps a Netflix series such as um, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt or The Keepers uh, comes to mind. Commonly, some form of exclusive extremist brainwashed group is the normal connotation. And those examples I just mentioned are certainly examples of cults. Meanwhile, potentially the largest cult in the United States is not typically the first thing that comes to mind. I am forced to define what I mean when I use the word Christianity. Uh, if I'm going to call them a cult, I need to define what they are. And in my opinion, this is actually a much harder task than defining the word cult. A Wikipedia article on Christianity would barely scratch the surface when giving a fair, nuanced, critical, or proper explanation of this religion. There is a way to answer the question of what Christianity is simply, uh, but it will only invite more questions. But here we go. A simple definition of Christianity is Christianity is the religion that claims to follow the teachings of Jesus. The immediate question that is begged is what did Jesus teach? There have been enough arguments and wars about that particular question, and I'll skirt the issue for now. For my current purposes, I'm interested in addressing a more relevant question. What is the difference between a religion and a cult? Joe Rogan had a famous joke of an answer, and it went something like, what's the difference between a religion and a cult? In a religion, the cult leader is dead. That answer is certainly more valid than dismissible. In fact, it is likely an apt and succinct summary of how popular atheists and anti-theists feel. Once upon a time, there was a cult leader. Religions are the things that happen when the leader dies and a large mass cannot let go. Thus, it becomes a multi-generational cult. Maybe people who view religions in this way are righter than I am. To me, this inference comes off as cold, reductive, or incomplete. Clearly, I have no issue with people thinking religions and their subsets mimic uh, cult-like behavior, and that earns uh, those um, religions a place on the receiving end of such a pejorative. But I like my nuances better. Maybe I'm a softie and have not quite shaken my antiquated neuropaths created when I was young. 
I am certainly not a pure rationalist, and I think spiritual significance is more than simple wishful thinking. Um, but humans have been religious to some extent for an exceedingly long time. Even Neanderthals buried their dead with relics. Over 3,000 years before Christ, Judaism existed. And in the same area, Egyptians were building monuments and worshiping gods. Uh, humans are drawn to worship and are often caught wondering about some sort of afterlife. Another popular but reductive argument is that these ancient people were so much dumber than us that we should disregard their spirituality. And I honestly cannot stand the arrogance of this sentiment. In some ways, these folks were uh, less regressed than modern civilization. And sure, they did not have as much access to information and were significantly less scientific, and they were wrong about many things, and there are thousands of instances of evil behavior executed because of their um, irrational views. But in the same breath, I want to acknowledge that these are our ancestors, and it's problematically Eurocentric to assume that these ancestors were dumb. Most of human society has craved spiritual and supernatural truth. If someone wants to demiss uh, that kind of anecdotal evidence um, with some guise of psychological rhetoric or moral superiority, so be it. I'll still admire their progressive spirit, and I'll give them uh, baseline respect. But further than that, I do not think it is academic or fair to think that religion is without some form of merit due to its age or merely based on instances of problematic behavior. In contrast, I am more than happy to share in my anti-theistic friend's practice of identifying, analyzing, and passing judgments on the particulars of different religions. Every religion I am familiar with has multiple extreme examples of problematic evil and horrific instances of poor behavior, and that's putting it nicely, especially when you read about each religion's historical atrocities which were committed in the name of their gods. Uh, and many have tried to splice the difference between individual spirituality and organized religion. And I respect the distinction in as much as I understand that faith is extremely personal and should be respected as such. And it is harmful to make unwarranted assumptions about someone's, someone because of the words they use um, to describe their various uh, inklings of the supernatural. But where I find the hair split problematic uh, between individual spirituality and organized religion is that human beings are autonomous enough to choose what groups they do and do not associate with. Additionally, organization is not inherently evil, no matter how bad Carlin and I wish that was so. If people want to build communities, literal or expressively, around their ideologies, they have that right. To tie all this word vomit together, I will say that the difference between a cult and a religion is ultimately up to everyone's personal discretion. So in that same vein, I will use my platform to explain where I have landed through my own personal discernment. And I believe that society benefits from some of the insights I have. And we can agree to disagree whether there is a difference between certain religions and cults. While I think personally that Christianity is beyond a mere cult as a religion, in practice it has become a mere cult. And more clarity will come in the exploring of the teachings of Jesus. And like I said earlier, exactly what Jesus taught has been so widely disputed that it feels rather arrogant and risky to take on the task of such um, an exposition. But here we go. Firstly, I should address that Jesus Christ of Nazareth 
did exist. Most religious scholars do not deny that there was a literal historical Jesus. Additionally, the major plot points of his lifespan seem to be effectively certain. Um, There are other scholars who deviate from the consensus and do have some interesting things to say. It's a rabbit hole, mind you, so I would advise keeping the stance that these theories of Christ's existence being a myth should be understood as fringe, but that does not mean that they are inherently insignificant or unintelligent. As much as I love the deviancy in denying his existence, I hold the position he lived and did much of what was reported about him. The primary source of uh, both Jesus' words and actions are the synoptic gospels of the New Testament. Additionally, Jesus is spoken of as a real Jewish person in the Pauline epistles. And beyond scripture, historical accounts by Josephus seem to confirm that Jesus was both a real and well-known person, especially um, by the constant referencing of Jesus' brother, James. It is controversial whether Jesus performed miracles. Most people will simply gravitate towards believing whichever disposition uh, they have regarding the existence of miracles and to what extent people just believe certain things are possible. He, uh, Jesus must have at the very least been some sort of magician because um, the Bible clearly suggests that Jesus did some unbelievable things. It is claimed that Jesus turned water into wine, healed lepers, and raised people from the dead, including himself. I do not want to touch those particular miracles at this point. What I will touch on is the most miraculous claim made by Christians, and that's that Jesus saved humanity from itself. The most well-known scripture verse, John 3.16, states that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is perhaps the main teaching of Jesus that is associated with Christianity. If you believe in Jesus wholeheartedly and that what he did was spiritually significant to your soul, you will live forever. And clearly this is faith-based because we have noticed that humans plants and animals all die eventually eternal life has not been proven in any tangible way to be fair there are many christians who focus less on this bit they view jesus as more of a symbolic messiah and his best hits are more important than the ideals built around the more cryptic philosophies he inspired and just for fun here are some of my favorite and probably the world's favorite jesus quotes Love one another as you would yourself. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and suffer the loss of his soul? Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Let the day's own trouble be sufficient for that day. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Give to everyone who begs from you, and of him who takes away your goods, Do not ask for them again, and as you wish that men would do to you, do so to them. Beyond this, Jesus was a um, character who detested selfishness, specifically when it came to hoarding wealth. He was also big on loving even your worst enemies and repeatedly stood up for the outcast of society. He was extremely critical of religious leaders and at least once violently reacted to corruption inside a house of worship. Clearly, Jesus is a character who is open to interpretations. As much as I love C.S. Lewis, he was wrong that you can only label him a savior or an insane person. Those may have been the uh, endpoints 
on the spectrum of exegesis, but when it comes to what we read about Christ, there is plenty of room in the middle. Um, Christianity has many sects, uh, denominations, and spinoffs. There are millions of people who identify as Christians who disagree on huge theological and practical points of what it means to be a Christian. And it would be impossible for me to have any precision in my critiques if I tried to stretch all points to apply to all Christians at all times. In the introduction of my book, I make it clear that the subset of Christianity I am concerned with is white evangelicalism in the United States. Now, that does not mean there are not other races, subsets, and countries that are not worth critiquing. Uh, This just happens to be the subset with which I am most familiar. And it probably makes sense that I would address evangelicalism in the United States. But there may be some concerned or confused by my need to bring race into the equation. In an ideal world, I would like to avoid talking about all things related to race. We are one human race, after all. Unfortunately, racism exists on both a circumstantial and systematic level. Denying any part of the dynamics between different races is simply unfair. I want to be clear. Black evangelicalism in the United States is certainly problematic. But what is more problematic is that there are such distinct subsets of Christianity. 90% of churches in the United States are still segregated, meaning that the race of its members is 95% plus part of one ethnic group. And this toxic division exists due to the aftershocks of unstigmatized white supremacy for all of this country's existence. We are still fighting white nationalism as of today. And I... I critique white evangelicalism not only because I am much more qualified to speak on it based on my upbringing and education, but also because I prefer to punch up. White evangelicalism is responsible for any of the problems in black evangelicalism, even if the problems are dramatically different because white identity is the original reasons um, is the original reason for this division to begin with. So what do I mean when I say the word evangelical? And dictionaries are a lot less helpful here. The word shares its root with evangelism, meaning good news proclamation, which is rather ironic considering that every time I see an evangelical, my brain goes, bad news, bad news, over and over again. But you would have to read multiple books to get a full grasp of evangelicals or at least live through the cult yourself. And um, what I've done is the best to write my own definition. Evangelicals are a group of Christians hyper-fixated or focused on crucifixion and resurrection narratives found in the gospel, believing that God will judge them as perfect and reward them with an eternal paradise due to Jesus' sacrificial death, and they believe that they have exchanged spiritual status with Jesus if they believe all these stories to be true and are compelled to believe that sharing the gospel is their life's purpose. It's a very clunky definition. Um but it is hard to get everything in there, and even that doesn't quite fully um, explain it. Uh, What I will say is that the movement is descended from the Protestant movement, which began in the 1600s and was a protest, hence the name Protestant, um, against the Roman Catholic Church. They emphasized the priesthood of all believers, which was a dig at the Catholics. Um, They emphasized justification by faith alone rather than good works. Um, They... uh, said that salvation comes by um, divine grace and it was not something you could earn and they believe the bible to be the sole highest authority of life 
rather than sacred tradition. Uh, there are evangelicals that are a part of many different denominations. Reformers, Presbyterians, Baptists, non-denominational, and many more. Uh, David Bebbington famously created the Evangelical Quadrilateral, which are the four marks of an evangelical. So here they are. Uh, the first mark of an evangelical is an emphasis on conversion, or conversionism. Uh, two, biblicism. Uh, three, centering of the crucifixion. And then four, activism. Evangelicals are typically conservative, some extremely so. And there are some liberal or progressive evangelicals, but they are a fringe minority. They still uh, try to hold to Bebbington's four marks, but they end up running into some problems with the conversion and activism parts. Um, evangelicals make up somewhere between uh, 25 to 33 percent of the U.S. population. That is a very large chunk and significant. And one of the reasons it was significant is uh, in recent history was 80 percent of white evangelicals voted for Trump in 2016. And their number one reason cited was because they believe that Trump would fix the economy. Um, this should not be that big of a surprise, though, because the founder of modern evangelical conservative activism was Jerry Falwell. And perhaps you've heard all the scandalous news concerning his son, Jerry Jr., um, describing odd sexual and grotesque behavior, something about him and his wife and a pool boy. Um, and he is the president of Liberty University, a school I was accepted into once upon a time. And he, uh, Jerry Jr., can, carries on that unfortunate legacy from the school's founder, his dad, Jerry Sr. And Jerry Falwell Sr. was a segregationist proponent and, frankly, an evil person. Many people do not actually realize how important segregation was to evangelicals during the civil rights era. I'm going to read a rather lengthy quote from a Politico article written in 2014. The title of the article is The Real Origins of the Religious Right, um, written by Randall Balmer. Quote, One of the most durable myths in recent history is that the religious right the Coalition of Conservative Evangelicals and Fundamentalists emerged as a political movement in response to the U.S. Supreme Court's 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling legalizing abortion. The tale goes something like this. Evangelicals, who had been politically quiet for decades, were so morally outraged by Roe that they resolved to organize in order to overturn it. The myth of origins is oft repeated by the movement's leaders. In his 2005 book, Jerry Falwell, the Firebrand Fundamentalist Preacher, recounts his distress upon reading the ruling in the January 23, 1973 edition of the Lynchburg News. Quote from Jerry, I sat there staring at the Roe v. Wade story, Falwell writes, growing more and more fearful of the consequences of the Supreme Court's act and wondering why so few voices had been raised against it. End of Jerry's quote. Continuing on with the article's quote, Evangelicals, he decided, needed to organize some of these anti-Roe crusaders even went so far as to call themselves new abolitionists, invoking their antebellum pre predecessors who fought to eradicate slavery. But the abortion myth quickly collapses under historical scrutiny. In fact, it wasn't until 1979, a full six years after Roe, that evangelical leaders at the behest of conservative activist Paul Weyrich uh, seized on abortion not for moral reasons, but as a rallying cry to deny President Jimmy Carter a second term. Why? Because the anti-abortion crusade was more palatable than the religious right's real motive, protecting segregated schools. So much 
for the new abolitionism, end quote. Infringing on a woman's autonomy is a better pitch than racism, I suppose. Still seems like there's something problematic that both of these ideals are associated with evangelicalism. How does a seemingly non-threatening group of people who supposedly worship a decent dude in history subscribe to such horrible beliefs? They are a cult. They are the cult of Christianity. So what? It is a world full of problems. Certainly socioeconomic trends, the political landscape, the environment, and worldwide poverty are more important problems to solve than this cult of Christianity. While my own bias tends to think the Christian cult actually infects all of these fields, beyond that, I not only have an academic interest in this field, I escaped the cult myself. I was born May 14, 1994, just outside Atlanta, Georgia. I was the third child but first son, and 36 days after I was born, I was baptized in front of a Presbyterian church. I have no memory of this, of course. I do have some fairly odd memories, though. I remember my first words, my first steps, the first time I wrote my name, but I do not remember my first church visit. This is because I was attending church while I was still in the womb. My parents were devoted Christians, and furthermore, devout Presbyterians. The PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, has its roots in a philosophical split over liberalism in the Presbyterian Church in the U.S., which was formerly known as the Presbyterian Church in the Confederate States of America. Racial tensions uh, may have contributed to the formation of the PCA, in fact. Many in the PCA have adamantly denied any motivation in splitting being primarily racial. But outside of the PCA, many have historical memory of racism undeniably contributing to their exodus from the PCUS. And another primary issue at the founding of the PCA was many people worried about women pastors, as this was believed to be highly anti-biblical. For better or worse, in December 1973, delegates representing some 260 congregants, um, sorry, congregations with a combined communicant membership of over 41,000 that had left the um, Presbyterian Church in the United States gathered at Briar, Briarwood uh, Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama, and organized the National Presbyterian Church, which later became the Presbyterian Church in America. The PCA is still extremely regulated regarding uh, their church government. The PCA maintains the Presbyterian Church government set forth in its own book of church order. Uh, local church officers include teaching elders, ruling elders, and deacons. The distinction between pastors and elders in the PCA is a mixture of the two traditions, and the PCA holds uh, to a quasi-party of pastors and elders. Um, and the ruling elders and teaching elders have the same voting rights in the courts of the church and can participate in each other's examinations and ordinations. Uh, pastors have deference as moderators of the local church sessions. Only pastors may administer the sacraments, and ordinarily only pastors may preach. Uh, also, elders are members of their local churches, while pastors are members of their presbyteries and not members of the local churches they serve. They have these three levels of church government, essentially. They have the session, which is go governs the local church, the presbytery, which is a, a regional uh, conglomeration of 13 to 20 um, churches, and then there's a general assembly, the highest court of the denomination. Well, my dad uh, was a ruling elder in the PCA for well over 25 years, 
Um, he has served on different committees and is the biggest nerd I know when it comes to the rules and regulations found in the uh, PCA's Book of Church Order. Obviously, I didn't understand or care about any of that when I was a small child. I was not aware of the problematic founding of the denomination or that my dad was essentially like a political leader of our tight-knit community. I just knew that we went to church at least three times a week, and that is where I met people. After all, I was homeschooled, and that in church was where I got most of my socialization. I was catechized, coerced to memorize scripture, and even wore a little clip-on tie. Uh, the pastor for most of my early life had a tradition of saying closing remarks at the back of the church, um, so that when uh, the service was done, he would shake the hand of every congregant as they were leaving the sanctuary. Well, as soon as I heard the final amen in church, I would sprint to the back of the sanctuary so I could shake hands with everyone right after the pastor did. I thought that church was pretty fun. Uh, though I was a choir boy, um, literally and figuratively, an honest evaluation of my mental state seems to cast me as a character determined to be a skeptic. Uh, I had so many doubts. I did not voice them all the time, though. I would occasionally, um, even though I was unsure, I never wanted to let on that I had serious doubts. I was incredibly determined to please and obey my parents. I was a, I was honestly about as perfect as um, a child could be in a lot of ways. Um, I was a hell of a tattletale, um, and I guess I still am, uh, hence this podcast. But I still vividly remember my skepticism. I remember singing 300-year-old plus hymns and looking around, um, and the same thought would enter my head each time. What if we're all faking it? I understood that the mere threat of hell would be enough for masses of people to provide lip service to a god. I was scared to say anything, um, because I didn't want my parents to be mad at me. And as I was a little older and continued to hear rhetoric around the idea of being 100% sure you are a Christian, or else you are not one, I was also told that I would experience Jesus for myself and would literally feel his presence in my life. Well, for better or worse, I officially converted to Christianity at 11 years old. I remember having a rather tough conversation with my dad about it. While it should have been a rather joyous occasion um, that I was finally convinced I had a genuine relationship with Christ, I was scared. I had been partaking in the Lord's Supper for two years prior. Every single time we corporately ate bread and drank grape juice, God forbid we drink wine, the pastor warned that anyone who took bread and wine in an unworthy way to God would be eating and drinking further damnation upon themselves. Every single time uh, we partook um, of the Lord's Supper, I would be torturously recapping in my head the whole week prior, thinking, trying to think, if I had any unconfessed sin and, and, and hopelessly being afraid that I was unaware of some unworthiness within me. Upon conversion, I, had, I, I faced up to the reality, or what I perceived to be the reality, that since I had not had an emotional encounter with Christ prior to my conversion, that I had two years banked of desecrating a holy sacrament since I had the Lord's Supper since I was nine years old. Well, um, my kind father assured me that I would be forgiven of all my sins, past, current, and future. Uh, I did not need to worry about this particular discretion even irreverence was forgivable. And the primary feeling accompanying that kind of forgiveness was relief. Uh, get out a hell free card seemed like less a perk and more like winning the whole game. 
Um, but the second feeling that followed that reassurance was simply confusion. If all is forgiven in the end, what is the point of being good to begin with? It seems like a better use of debt would be to run my credit line higher in the sin department until later in life. Wouldn't I get all the pleasure from sin and all the forgiveness from God? Like Miley Cyrus, don't I want the best of both worlds? Well, the more I thought about it, the more I decided to stop thinking about it. I concluded that even trying to find such a loophole must be indicative of a selfish heart. From what I heard in church, a selfish heart is about the worst thing imaginable. So instead, I proceeded to become exceedingly zealous for Jesus. I switched gears from focusing on the rules and desired to focus more on the relational elements of faith, both to the divine in heaven and the divine in everyone around me. Help in the church kitchen? I'd stir some taters. Mission trips? Sign me up. Handbell choir? Ding dong, mother uh, <laughs> But uh, some of my fondest memories were of, uh, were of Bible camp. Uh, whitewater rafting, archery, rock climbing, basketball, silly games, um, sliming counselors, uh, eating contest, and e- I-, I even coined a signature dance that became legendary around camp. And this was all somehow for Jesus, and I was into it. And I don't mean to trivialize uh, the actual growth, um, spiritual or otherwise, that happened in those days. Um, there were some amazing counselors, speakers, and mentors that I had the privilege of uh, receiving their collective and individual wisdom. And I'm sure in retrospect, I would find some of their perspectives problematic. But I wouldn't be surprised if a select handful of those people from back then also felt that some of their perspectives were problematic back then. Doesn't matter, because overall, the experience was positive. One of the reasons it was such a positive experience is that they created a legitimately safe space for ideas to be explored. A rare type of environment for most adolescents, especially those from the uh, Christian variety. While there is plenty of further indoctrination and proselytization that happens at Bible camp, asking honest questions and genuine concern for me was at least um, encouraged from top to bottom. And those summers helped me fall in love more with Christianity, or at least what I perceived Christianity to be. People in evangelical circles will talk tongue-in-cheek about these kind of mountaintop experiences. They don't completely devalue their worth, but warn of the dangers um, from coming off a spiritual high such as that. They acknowledge the steep contrast between such events and the regular world. Uh, Church sometimes tries to recreate these uh, refuges of authenticity in some ways, but they most often fail. And I think that's that's always frustrated me. Why, Why was it so crazy to want church to be more like summer camp? Why couldn't it be fun? Why couldn't it be more about relationships? Why did the traditions and liturgy seem more important than normal, authentic interactions and wanderings? So I figured there must be some sort of problem that the masses were in denial about. Perhaps the Christian community has a log in its eye that is too embarrassing to remove. Well, even while some good times were being had at camp, I was also going through some of the worst mental sickness of my life. Starting at age 12, I was very suicidal. Um, I began obsessing over many things, including girls, um, 
and part of the problem in in those unhealthy obsessions with girls was uh was my view on women i was obsessing over emo culture primarily through the internet and um my own flaws i was really obsessed with my own flaws um some of which were just self sabotage or um or made up and manufactured in my imagination the church my family was attending through my high school years was much more harmful than helpful on this front. I hope it is understood that my efforts in labeling um, Christianity a cult are not simply my own projections or way of coping with the trauma of that one particular church. I have sorted and continue to file my coping and perspectives on evangelicalism, understanding my own biases and reactions to my negative adolescent experiences. For the sake of showing where the extremes can lead, it is worth shining light, though, on how the church in my teenage years affected my mental health. In an ultra-reformed PCA church that was hyperfixated on uh, humanity's unworthiness and lack of value apart from God, I had little chance to build any kind of self-esteem. From the pulpit to conversations in the narthex, it was clear that hatred towards your flaws was deemed healthy and love for your best parts was discouraged. Since I was already struggling to find enough value to stay alive each morning, I find it extra cruel that I was consistently subjected to rhetoric that expected shameful servitude as the proper posture. Three repeated quotes that I would hear almost weekly at church still haunt me. One quote was, he must increase, so I must decrease. Another one was, our, our good deeds are as filthy rags um, compared to God. And maybe the worst of all, they used to always say, we must mortify our sin, or even worse, they'd say, we must mortify our flesh and vivify our life in Christ. The implication was that the self is evil. However, they wouldn't say that. In fact, they would say, don't hate yourself. If you hate yourself, you are disappointing God. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. That particular church slanted towards masochistic views of a controlling God who you could never impress. The only motivation personal and spiritual growth growth, um, that they viewed was proper was gratitude, but what they meant by gratitude was shame. Uh, And the doctrine was Calvinistic, a problematic school of thought all on its own. In this Calvinistic system, everyone is totally depraved, and they only deserve some decency because they are made in God's image. God picked out a few people before the foundations of the world, saved from his wrath, and then he sent Jesus to earth to uh, save those people and no more and no less. And people are powerless to resist this rescue, and the only possible explanation for leaving the faith is you were never truly a chosen one to begin with. If God picked you, you would stay with him. This is the archetype, an example of unconditional love that I was taught. This was the model for how humans are supposed to treat one another. Every non-Christian only experiences imitations of this love and never the real thing. They, they would say that believers should set boundaries with non-believers, but not have boundaries with each other because we are all family. Well, if you reject any part of this message, you'll get sentenced to an eternity of demented psychological, emotional, and spiritual turmoil um, with absolutely no chance to change your faith. The, the worst part of these teachings was that no spiritual leader or fervent adherent would be quick to say that 
what I am saying now is an accurate portrayal of what I was taught. I would be gaslighted into saying that, oh, I'm misremembering or that I somehow misunderstand. They, if they heard me now, would scoff and say that I'm being cynical or I've fallen for satanic rhetoric or worst of all, I've just really been hurt by the church. A codified way of saying my opinion is irrelevant. When push comes to shove, that was the dogma that I was taught. And there may have been some nice people among that church, but who cares? Some irreversible damage has already been done to me by being exposed to such ideologies, and I'm saddened to know that there are likely others harmed by that church and many others. And so high school was rough, as it is for everyone. And thankfully, at the time, I was able to branch out and find better social groups through sports and being in a punk band. It was outside of church that I discovered the authentic communities I longed for. And again, I don't want to be heard wrong. The church of my high school experience was a unique case of extra toxicity. I do not imagine all, or maybe even most churches, are exactly like the one I experienced. However, even in the extremes you find out what is permissible under an entire system or ideology. That church didn't become a nightmare in a vacuum. I even knew that to be true at the time. As I continued to become more aware of my mental sickness back in those days and and found ways to function, I was able to identify the problematic behaviors and did not immediately assume all Christianity to be a cult. But I also knew that if this church was behaving and believing this way, there were likely countless others. And I think those thoughts are what sparked a renewed interest in becoming a pastor. The underlining assumption I had as a child long before my official conversion began to nag at the depths of my subconscious. It is no coincidence that I was approaching the age threshold of finding my personal purpose. My honest preferred path at that age was more related to music. As that tragically awful band uh, Nickelback once said, We all just want to be big rock stars. Um, But it did not take long for it to be apparent that uh, that dream was not likely. So I settled for a more reasonable fantasy of being a music teacher. When I uh, first started touring colleges, that was my interest. And my knowledge of music was not nearly comparable, um, though, to my knowledge of the Bible and Christianity. I had more biblical education by the time I was 13 than many seminary students. Um, I would have been much more... It would have just been much more uh, pragmatic um, to attend Bible college just looking at it objectively. Even so, rational thought was not the primary backing behind my decision to apply only to Bible college, and further than that, only one Bible college. The primary mover in the equation, I thought, was the Holy Spirit. I was convinced that I was called to be a pastor. A calling in evangelical communities is some vague internal sense that feels external, uh, that is coming from God, specifically in the case uh, of being called to ministry. And I actually don't find this concept inherently laughable. Um, There are unexplainable phenomena that contribute to our life choices. Um, And attributing these urges to a God is pretty bold, um, but perhaps not as crazy as it sounds. Functionally, however, the call to ministry is rather complex in how in how it functions within the cult of Christianity. I address this uh, topic of um, of calling more directly in my book. Uh, in fact, uh, here's an ad for my book right here. 
decided to act on this supposed calling and I researched college that cut different colleges that offered bachelor's degrees in pastoral ministry. There were not as many options as less specialized fields uh, in the United States, but I did stumble on one particularly uh, reputable at the time uh, institution. So I applied to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. I had a remarkably interesting connection to this college the philosophy professor was actually the father of an ex-girlfriend of mine. I was not excited to reunite with this intellectually intimidating man and likely to be graded by him at some point. Even so, I felt that my calling was such a God-given duty that I would suffer through the awkwardness of it all for the sake of obeying the Lord and spreading his message. Thankfully, if there be a God, even he felt that would be too cringy to watch. <clears throat> so I did get accepted into the school, but they were at max capacity in Chicago, so as a compromise, they accepted me into the overflow of their secondary campus in Spokane, Washington. I remember reading that acceptance letter that was seasoned with a touch of rejection saltiness. I was good enough to give them money, just not their main campus. Also, where the hell was Spokane, as I pronounced it at the time? Well, it turns out it was on the opposite side of the country, literally. That was a bigger commitment than I was intending. I took two days to pray about it, and no giant fish swallowed me to spit me out a different direction. So off to Spokane, I went. August 1st, 2012, I moved into a house I had never seen with seven, seven other male students I had never met in a state I had never been to. Quite the adventure I was signing up for. My ambition was probably ill-advised in some ways, I was rather ignorant to the amount of culture shock I was going to experience. Keep in mind, a lot of my motivation behind going into this field is that I wanted to be an agent of change. I was not volunteering to regurgitate harmful tropes I had heard my whole life. I saw Jesus as the author of unconditional love and had a genuine desire to connect people to the faith that I believed offered forgiveness and hope. There was no facade. I wanted to do the right thing which seemed to be sharing the gospel so people could feel loved. Ironically, I'm not sure, I really felt the kind of love I was hoping to spread in my relationship with the divine. What I understood love to be was unbreakably linked to Christianity. Love apart from Christ sounded like an oxymoron to me. I was so fearful and heartbroken for those who did not have the right information like I supposedly did. I thought the ship was sinking and felt I needed to warn others. So Moody Bible Institute in Spokane was actually a fairly impressive place to obtain a relevant education to obtain my goals. I met some incredible 
and qualified professors who were thorough and honest and unafraid to challenge anyone's way of thinking. Classes and homework were something I enjoyed. The culture of the campus, however, was full of trials. I'm not particularly inclined to tell countless anecdotes about the sour experiences and instances of ugliness uh, that happened there. A podcast can only be so long, um, and I certainly experienced immediate culture shock, though. I, I had never been around so many evangelical Christians in my life, and I thought I was quite the zealot for even being there. In fact, when I told most of my friends back home that I was leaving Georgia to become a pastor, I was met primarily with laughter. Uh, that should have been a sign I did not fit the typical mold of one who wants a career in church. I didn't see enough signs to prepare me for just how outcast I would feel. I did meet some wonderful people my freshman year, many I'm still cordial with and even a close friend or two. In fact, I met my eventual wife not many weeks after I first arrived. Regardless, I remember constantly feeling like I absolutely did not belong in this culture. The way the majority of students talked, joked, and had fun, and even thought about Christianity seemed so foreign to me. And I'm sure that college, in general, no matter what kind of college you go to, is an overwhelming experience for anyone. You do meet a variety of people from different backgrounds and beliefs, and I think one of the more peculiar things about Moody Bible Institute Spokane's college culture is actually how similar everyone was. Even disagreements had an undertone of, but we all are family. Well, a family indeed. Toxic flaws and all. Um, the amount of passive-aggressive comments, subtle shaming, and outright ignorance and arrogance was overstimulating and painful. I had found the opposite of integrity and vulnerability. I began to befriend more seniors than underclassmen due to the slight incline in maturity I found there. Um, even the most loving seniors still had a toxic flair to their style of communication, uh, though there were a few exceptions of just wonderful people. But unfortunately, when you grow closest to seniors, um, your freshman year, it is not long until all your friends graduate. And I don't want to continue to simply uh, create an audio biographical audiobook about my college experience. Um, when people recount their college stories, they are often more compelling in their own head than in reality. I am hoping that I am painting a picture where I immediately knew something was off about the culture of my school. I just couldn't quite identify why the more Christians I met, the less of them I wanted to be around. And I did well in college. I ended up having better friendships with professors than students. Uh, those bonds served me well and greatly impacted the quality of education I received. I got good grades, um, became the editor of our academic journal at the school. I worked in the Academic Success Center and would eventually win an award for outstanding preaching. And I was fairly well known around campus, and typically I was at least tolerated. Um, I got engaged to a wonderful human and uh, had nothing but potential to ascend the ranks as a spiritual leader. I had forward momentum in establishing my outward goals, but inwardly, I was going any direction but a correct one. I had uh, poor behavior in how I related to my lover and had a growing resentment towards any person who would try to get near me or close to me. Um, I had serious doubts about God, um, the establishment of churches, my own self-worth, and I had doubts about whether any of this was going to be okay. I was desperate for an outlet 
um, to be vulnerable, but lack the skills and resources to take care of these struggles. And I know I lack these skills and resources because every time I approached becoming a better person, the uh, authentic pursuit of self-discovery, I was met with shame, either by my own indoctrinated brain or directly from those around me who claimed all this shame was in the name of love. And I'm keeping this part of the narrative vague for now um, because I do believe the particulars of these instances will be discussed through this experiment of a podcast. Um, But in the interest of landing this plane with one last dose of turbulence, I will fast forward years ahead to December 19th, 2017. On that day, my spouse wisely decided to pack up, leaving nothing but a note and divorce papers on the counter while I was at work. And she was right to make that decision. Unfortunately, that was the same day a good friend um, and well-loved student from college passed away in a rather grotesque way. It was also the same day as a, a one of my uncle's funerals um, that I did not get to go to. I also uh, decided to quit my job that day <laughs> due to ethical concerns at my workplace. And around the day off, uh, I got a phone call from the local gun shop that my gun had arrived after being shipped from Georgia. So fair to say, that was a bad day. And I still wrestle through somehow feeling responsible for all the tragedy that took place that day. And the reason I struggle is because I was 100% responsible for the most directly heartbreaking event of that cursed state. Um, my marriage crumbled due to my failures. I'm not interested in exposing myself and explaining every single thing I did wrong in that relationship. It is multifaceted, and I am taking care of the aftershocks and patterns I exhibited through therapy and reflection. It is a personal issue, and it is a tightrope deciding what parts of my life I am fine with being public and what parts I'd rather deal with privately. That doesn't mean I am not adamant that it be known the marriage uh, ending was not my ex's fault in any way. I was the villain of that story, and I'm hopeful that no listener who might enjoy the things I have to say would subconsciously take my side when it comes to my past marriage. She did not leave me in as much as she escaped a toxic husband. And I don't mean to put on an artifice of false humility or deprecate myself to hold an archetype of a broken man or garner sympathy. I only want to be honest, and I'm only withholding some information that is best dealt with in safe spaces and not a widely available podcast. However... I find it relevant to set the scene of um, my final personal faith crisis. After my ex left, we did try to repair things through couples coaching. These sessions were invaluable to me, and I am grateful for that space where I could be my most authentic self. The damage I had caused in our marriage turned out to be irreversible, but having a healthy outlet um, likely set the trajectory of my life in a much less dire direction. Even so, I was confronted with how I related to my faith during this tumultuous time. I remember being asked about how God could let something as painful as the heartbreak around me to happen, and I responded with the script evangelicals had given me as a response to this question for over a decade. I was, um, after I was asked, I pontificated about the Adam and Eve narrative and how God is actually gracious to offer humanity any hope due to our collective sinful nature, but as I was pontificating, I stopped mid-sentence as a rather haunting epiphany was realized. I definitively grasped that 
I was not listening to the question posed about the problem of evil, but mindlessly repeating what I was told to say. It hit me all at once. I was part of a cult. That moment of clarity was not enough to make separating from evangelicalism any easier. I was in and out of a few different churches for a few weeks. I was still unwilling to deny that I was a Christian, and to this day I still stumble through that phrase. I was praying more, but less convinced that answers were coming from an evangelical God. My emotions began to be rather overwhelming, and I quickly descended into patterns of alcoholism and apathy. Uh, I drank what little money I had left, and once my lease was up, I began to couch surf and was functionally homeless and only moved into an apartment when a dear friend literally put a lease in my hand. I wasn't um, mentally able to work for quite a while, and when I finally had to face capitalism, I was numb and lacked the presence of mind through it all. Uh, The suicidal ideation was as clear as it had ever been. Through the support of some beautiful friends, um, emotionally, financially, and perhaps even spiritually, my spiral did not end with a jump off a bridge, and I can never say thank you enough to those who helped me off the edge more than once. Still, I needed to explore who I was now that all the band-aids had been ripped off my diseased soul, and I knew Spokane, Washington offered me nothing positive anymore. I was homesick for my hometown of Atlanta and knew a journey back was inevitable. I had little means to get back on my feet, much less follow them home. Uh, Thankfully, my dad happened upon an old mail van while he was surfing online auctions that was so affordable he gifted it to me. Little did he know he was not only procuring me a car, but a house as well. Uh, The hashtag van life trend looks rather glamorous online. Thousands of Instagram accounts and YouTube channels present the nomad life as a romantic adventure full of uh, beautiful landscapes and creative minimalist solutions to our strange era of complicated needs and i knew that my move into a van was not going to be so extravagant i was still hoping though to renew a sense of adventure and provide myself an opportunity to travel the u.s in search of meaning and self-worth i gave away or threw away all my possessions that would not fit into this dodge caravan cargo edition and began a new life My first stop was Seattle to see my oldest friend, who had actually attended both the churches of my youth, and that stop was the perfect place to begin. From there, I went to uh, Oregon to visit my aunt and uncle, both of whom are retired Methodist pastors. That stop offered me a healthier perspective on what positives Christianity can offer. From there, I traveled down the coast. Uh, I would scrape together whatever cash I could from busking and begging for gas money from family, uh... And I would uh, go to thrift stores and spend what little quarters I had to buy poetry books to read. And I would spend nights crying and nights also celebrating the sounds of nature. I spent days driving, occasionally pulling to the side of the road to scream at the Pacific Ocean. They were prayers of sorts. Um, They were unlike most of the prayers in my life. They were not with any certainty that anyone was listening. While that felt lonesome, it also helped me to face my base fear that I am all alone. I reunited with an old bartender in Northern California at a resort too fancy for a man without a shower. Even so, that drunken night was perhaps the least self-destructive one I have ever had. I traveled through Nevada, 
the definitive low light of the entire journey. I slept in the desert among wild donkeys and jackrabbits. Sounds a lot cooler than it was. Chugging along on fumes of gas, I made it to Utah. I spent a few days there until family provided enough financial support for me to make the rest of the trek. In Mormon country, I was starting to think about how I had often heard their religion described as a cult. Ironically, the Mormons I had met throughout my life considered themselves Christians no different than I. My laughter was inescapable as I realized I now saw evangelicalism how evangelicals saw Mormonism. After stopping by a food bank to stock up on some more non-perishables, I proceeded to Colorado to visit my, at the time, very pregnant sister. This reconnection was difficult, not due to anything wrong she did, but because this was my first reintroduction back into my Christian roots. This confrontation was difficult for everyone involved, I'm sure, as I felt hyper-aware of every problematic connotation that was effortlessly uttered in casual conversation. I began getting frustrated that my perspectives, uh, or my overall perspective even, was going to be so different than it was um, when I was growing up. And coming out of the evangelical closet was not going to be received by everyone from my past with wide open arms. Yet I could not scratch the itch to proclaim my newfound perspectives and worldviews. I had been kicking around the idea that I would write a book for a long time. Even before I stopped attending church and identifying as a Christian, the phrase cult of Christianity would repeat in my head. As I weaned myself from my religious roots, I became more convinced that the process of writing down my thoughts would be a worthwhile development. From Colorado, I went to Kansas City to visit folks who could only be described as the most amazing cousins to ever live. They showered me with love and spoiled me with good food, good conversations, and they even paid a professional to give me a much-needed full-body massage. The environment was as authentic and beautiful as I've ever experienced. I felt alive and myself around this family. I should probably give genuine credit to the beautiful atmosphere they created for giving me the confidence to finally uh, put finger to keyboard and begin the procedures of writing my book. I wrote a few chapters during my time in Kansas City. By the time I would finally make it to Atlanta, I was passionate about the work I was doing and had poured myself into it. The book was published on Christmas Day 2019. The book is not highly academic, nor is it even as nuanced as this podcast will be. Uh, I view it as an explanation of a basic premise, that Christianity, specifically white American evangelicalism, functions as a cult, controlling, containing, and converting. I hear it's a good thing to have purpose behind any project you start. The systems I wish to dismantle in my conversations and monologues will not likely uh, dissipate in my lifetime. Those systems will probably be here long after I'm, out, I'm gone, and I have to decide whether this endeavor is worth taking on. Further than that, I've already written a book and put in my two cents. I have to figure out whether this continued discussion is an attempt to foster a meaningful dialogue or if I'm just repeating concepts I am unhealthily obsessed with. Either way, I will ride a unicycle down a highway and it might be a spectacle or a tragedy. I bother to bring all this up because if I don't bring it up, it will bother me. But beyond my personal goals, I do have greater hopes for the United States cultural and religious landscape. And all of that is definitely due for a good pruning. 
the presupposition behind all of this is undoubtedly honesty. Honesty is a tricky concept for the overthinkers of the world like me. For many, truth is viewed as a simple concept, even if it is a difficult one. But there might be something inherently wrong with viewing the truth as a simple notion. Understanding human limitations on an individual and collective level is important. I don't mean to encourage apathy. Humanity has proven its potential to be just shy of unimaginable. However, in a technical sense, our potential is not infinite. There are some barriers in our evolution, physically, mentally, and perhaps even spiritually. Truth is what we aim for, and deciphering whether that target is moving or simply too far away to hit the bullseye crushes any dreams of an honest utopia. I believe that finding truth can't be done through one simple, straightforward path. One common methodology is the taxing paradigm of presenting a thesis, then an antithesis, in hopes of finding some sort of consensus. And not every concept needs to be antagonized, especially those concepts that have already had their fair share of dissenters. Even so, it is valuable to turn the big picture upside down and make sure it was set up right originally. The process is never permanent. The hope is that we will reach some level of agreement on which direction satisfies our collective conscience. That level of thinking about truth is all theoretical and a convenient uh, pontification to engage in, escaping the harder practical work. Honesty requires saying what you believe is true. For someone like me, who is often unsure about what I technically believe, being honest is more of a chore than a joy. What specificity is contextually needed each day feels unknowable. What kind of question is, how are you doing? How did such a packed question become a small talk staple? I sometimes distinguish between the terms honesty and vulnerability. Honesty should be the goal. Honesty is what I'm after. Vulnerability is the practice of being honest. Vulnerability also takes a lot of practice. Being vulnerable implies an element of risk involved. No one wants to show off their weaknesses. I would argue that the risk of vulnerability is actually not as dire as the risk of refraining from being vulnerable. How one even practices their vulnerability is not necessarily universal, and no step-by-step -step guide can be bought. I do know that the safest place to practice more regular vulnerability is in the quiet of your own heart. In a never-ending rat race of a culture, finding the time to sit back and be vulnerable with yourself is difficult. The corners of our brains gather cobwebs, and house cleaning is put on the back burner when you are more worried about where your next paycheck might come from. Beyond that, running diagnostics on our system can be scary. What kind of work is going to need to be done on ourselves and at what cost? This is the necessary first step of being honest, though. If you are not honest and vulnerable with yourself, being honest and vulnerable with others is impossible. And I am not saying you need to overthink yourself to death or overshare with every stranger. What I am suggesting is that if we do not strive to be an honest society, we will likely become an evil society, and we might already be there.
I'm not wishing to be as cynical as the Calvinistic tormentors of my past. Humanity is not so totally depraved by nature that we should take a capitalist approach and assume selfishness to be the default of every human. Humanity's most beautiful feature is our cooperative instinct that has had the clearest benefits for individuals, groups, and our entire species. But look around. The United States is on a frightening... It's scary how and discouraging our negative trajectory. The, the worldwide environment is collapsing in dramatic fashion. Whether you hold more conservative or liberal values doesn't matter. All values seem to be disintegrating in our communities. The markers of a healthy society are negative across the board. And I mention this not to discount the highlights. Humanity has had good and helpful accomplishments that can be reviewed in recent history. Even so, as we become more selfish and dishonest, we do so at our own detriment. Denial is rampant, especially among Christians. I do think that some of the toxic behaviors that disturb me are present outside of the Christian cult as well. But I'm not interested in dismissing the case against evangelicals based on their shared problems with other folks. Christian comportment exhibits indicators of what that structure and culture breeds. The amount of denial within Christianity, especially the white evangelical cult, is diametrically opposed to the goals of honesty and vulnerability. Only about a third of Christians claim to read the Bible once a week, yet they also believe it's the only true source of divine wisdom. Also, I went to Bible college and can authoritatively say that just because a Christian might claim they are reading their Bible often does not mean they are. In fact, study after study confirms that atheists and agnostics tend to know more about the content, history, and figures of the Bible, as well as Christian history, than the entire scope of Christians from all sorts of denominations and backgrounds. Rational approaches to religion are set up to be opposed to the evangelical cult. They do not necessarily have to be, but this has been shown to be exactly what cult leaders want. In the news recently, Ravi Zacharias illustrated evangelical Christianity's denial and hypocrisy in a disgustingly obvious way. Here is a summary from Christianity Today magazine. Quote, A four-month investigation found the late Ravi Zacharias leveraged his reputation as a world-famous Christian apologist to abuse massage therapists in the United States and abroad. Over more than a decade, while the ministry led by his family members and loyal allies failed to hold him accountable, he used his need for massage and frequent overseas travel to hide his abusive behavior, luring victims by building trust through spiritual conversations and offering funds straight from his ministry. Even a limited review of Zacharias's old digital devices revealed contacts for more than 200 massage therapists in the U.S. and Asia and hundreds of images of young women, including some that showed the women naked. Zacharias solicited and received photos until a few months before his death in May 2020 at age 74. End quote. Nothing about that abusive pattern should be seen as normal. Yet this is not the first time we have heard this story with different characters. Here is a quote from an article written by Terry Mattingly, a journalist who investigates uh, religious scandals for a living. Quote, The fall of Zacharias is a perfect example of why it is so difficult to cover independent, non-denominational parachurch ministries 
and independent congregations as well. Nine times out of ten, radically independent religious organizations are only as honest as their charismatic, gifted, rainmaker founders allow them to be. This is true whether we are talking about yoga or the prosperity anti-gospel. It was true long ago when I worked with skilled investigative reporters trying to probe the hidden scandals of PTL's Jim Baker. Alas, this remains true today, end quote. Whether or not it is possible for some pastors and evangelical leaders to set forth an accountable and honest precedent is debatable. Perhaps it is technically possible. And I'm sure there's a line of zealous evangelicals who want to provide me with the example of how their pastor is so great and has some systematic approach to being accountable. But I find it dangerous to continue the conversations in terms of potential and what could be. We need to take an honest look at the actual evidence and make informed choices about what is acceptable. Christians deny the reality of their system and it causes harm to everyone. My hope for this podcast and frankly for my life is that I will be identifying the right problems in Christianity. After the news of Zacharias's abuse became widespread, the social media reaction by most contained some level of disgust and distrust. However, evangelicals almost automatically began to find this particular instance as problematic, but they didn't find the form and structure of Christianity to be the primary mover in this. They are detectives in denial. They often share the same clues that I do, but refuse to acknowledge the simplest solve. The cult of Christianity's problems are not failures to be Christian enough. There are some, particularly younger evangelicals, who are fighting the good fight to demand more accountability from their leaders. I applaud them in their continued efforts. And while I trust there is a sincereness to their demands, I find it discouraging that many still revert to the source of the problematic patterns to somehow provide any kind of radical change. Accountability is a fun buzzword, but if you are unwilling to concede that your religious subset contains ultimate truth, no one's allowed to challenge your tribe's consensus. I'm not starting this podcast to merely exercise my own vulnerability and postulate honest opinions. I also am desperately demanding that others do the same. My honest opinion is that white evangelicalism in the United States must be deconstructed. And the technical definition of deconstruction is a method of critical analysis of philosophical and literary language which emphasizes the internal workings of language and conceptual systems, the relational quality of meaning, and the assumptions implicit in forms of expression. To put all that simply, deconstruction is finding the real meaning. We need to critically analyze the philosophical language of Christianity. It attempts to answer what it means to be human, how we should then live, and what happens after we die. These claims could be harmless wonderings, but seem more often um, to be compulsory prerequisites to achieve the eternal joy they assert is available in exchange for lifelong submission. We need to critically analyze the literary language of the Bible. This does require a historical grammatical understanding of the original text, author, and audience. The Bible is not some mystic Jumanji game of script in which spiritual enlightenment comes from the pages, digital or physical. We need to critically analyze Christianese, how Christians talk. Digging past the obscure surface-level terms evangelical use is important. 
in finding the real meaning and intent of their system. Demanding this kind of accountability is in the spirit of care. We are all susceptible to different poor behaviors without some form of liability. Evangelicals need to be held responsible for not only their past misconduct, but the cultures, subsets, and ideologies that are leading to a great amount of harm. An accountability team primarily comprised of pastors who think just like each other, or even worse, have way too much power and authority, is probably not safe or wise. Accountability does not look like cancel culture, but it does look like consequence culture. We don't always need to bring out guillotines or banish folks, even when the crimes are highly offensive. And I don't wish to participate in a society that primarily motivates good behaviors through threats of punishment in the same breath. Christianity has been primarily motivating the behavior they prefer from their adherents through threats, spiritual and otherwise. Allowing a group to have such control over folks is irresponsible and negligent. No human should be allowed to dictate your personal spiritual status, and it is sacrilegious to invoke a God's authority to shame anyone's lack of conformity. Deconstructing white evangelicalism in the United States is necessary. I may be particularly fiery about this topic, but I hope I am understood to still be nuanced in my approach. I do think there is a contrast between healthy deconstruction and an unhealthy one. Unhealthy deconstruction is more synonymous with destruction. I do not wish to attack an ideological sect out of a sense of revenge or sadism. Burning a city down because it is built on a bad foundation is not always the most efficient approach, nor an inherently moral one. The house of cards may fall, but it is unnecessary to bring out a bulldozer to do so. Precision is a more apt device for dismantling this cult. Healthy deconstruction understands that this current setup is dangerous. In the process of putting out particularly harmful fires, it is almost inevitable that I and others will get burned, so it will require suiting up. In other words, anyone who seeks to deconstruct a system must understand how the system operates. If you do not understand how the philosophical, literary, and cultural language functions, productive nitpicking will get lost in translation. The pain this cult has caused is not an excuse to lash out, but rather an opportunity to demonstrate the benefits of leaving it. Personally, I want to deconstruct white evangelicalism in the United States because I am hopeful for a rebuild. A complete eradication might sound appealing to me at first glance. Unfortunately, the easy path is not always the right one. Rather than purge Christianity from the earth, I think some form of reconstruction has to ultimately be the goal. One of the most important questions in all of this has to be, what type of religion is tolerable? Here in the United States, religious freedom has historically been a huge priority. The First Amendment in our Constitution states, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the rights of people peace or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances there have been thousands of cases where courts have had to determine controversial interpretations of this blanket statement clearly the men who wrote the constitution were doing a form of deconstruction about how the church and the state should interact they were trying to prevent some good things to try to prevent but they might have overcorrected or maybe they didn't. 
Maybe establishing a precedent of anarchical rules of religion is the truest precept of freedom. Obviously, this amendment was never intended to permit murder in the name of religion or obvious infringement of other folks' rights. The problem is in the more subtle injustices that are sometimes excused due to either willful or dogmatic ignorance. So what classifies as harm when it comes to religion? Even some of the most extreme cults have claimed that people are free to go anytime they like. If these beliefs are indeed voluntary, it seems the moral thing would be to allow people to believe whatever they want. And I'm not interested in playing tug-of-war from one ideology to another. I want to be tolerant. And that does require renouncing any desire to control other words. In other words, I do not want to fight fire with fire. I do not want people to subscribe to whatever the hell I say. Otherwise, I would be a cult leader. My concern is that religious leaders cause harm through their pressure and influence in politics, their drain on the collective mental health of society, and their spineless attempts to excuse poor behavior through theoretical rhetoric. Figuring out to what extent religious freedom is tolerable in a society is tricky. In fact, many arguments could be made that religious freedom is beneficial in different ways. I think we've been putting off this debate for far too long. Nor has any of the few instances of inconsequential fringe debate had been a proper dissecting of the issue, only impassioned and over-emotional tribalistic groupthink. I do believe that deconstructing white American evangelicalism is a perfect starting point in reconstructing a healthier view of what a beneficial religious culture could look like. There are healthy narratives in the major religions, and Christianity is no exception. What I mean by healthy narratives is that I'm actually still a huge fan of the redemptive story contained in scripture and upheld in Christian mythology. The concept that no matter how broken the world is, how damaged your soul feels, or how helpless the human condition seems, there is some hope that it can all be made right again. I often meditate on the concept of shlom, the Hebrew word most commonly translated as peace in English. Shlom is derived from a root denoting wholeness or completeness. And its frame of reference through Jewish literature is poetic and beautiful. Shlom is not simply related to politics, such as like an absence of war or disagreement. The word covers several different contexts, from flourishing physical conditions to proper values and morals, and ultimately to a divine attribute. In the Bible, the word shlom is most commonly used to refer to a state of affairs, one of well-being, tranquility, prosperity, and security, circumstances unblemished by any sort of defect. Shalom is a blessing, a manifestation of divine grace. In the rabbinic te- texts, uh, shalom primarily signifies a value, an ethical category. It denotes the overcoming of social tension, the prevention of enmity. The pursuit of peace is the obligation of the individual and the goal of social and religious structures. The majority of passages in the Bible on the subject of peace are concerned with communal life. Shalom was the ultimate objective of the whole Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible. Shalom is used as the name of the Holy One, the name of Israel, the name of the Messiah. And in fact, the name of God was sometimes blotted out in water for the sake of Shalom. Several rabbinic sayings concerning the power of peace go beyond the socio-ethical realm to enter the domain of the cosmic, the Holy One, makes peace with the supernal and the lower worlds 
uh, among the mortals on earth and between the sun and the moon and so on and so on. Shalom seems to be the mission of Jesus. His life's work seems to be one of fulfilling the call to find peace and spread it to others. Nonviolently, he gave up his own life despite the clear injustice that was uh, being made, all the while questioning all the rigid and corrupt regulations imposed by religious leaders, speaking out against those who unethically obtained and hoarded wealth, and spending time with societies shamed and unwanted. Not only is that narrative and perspective great storytelling, but I also find it healthy. Our society could benefit from a renewed interest in Christian mythology stripped of the man-made ideologies attached to their systematic hierarchies. In the same vein, these healthy narratives should not come at the cost of indulging delusional ignorance of empirical facts. Having a personal relationship with the Jesus that died over 2,000 years ago may be possible, but would undeniably be extraordinary and categorically different from the tangible relationships we experience in our daily lives. In no way does the claim of such a spiritual connection excuse science denial, incitement of holy privilege, or willful ignorance. Ironically, here we are. It seems the ultimate goal that I'm trying to obtain is something close to preserving the most important teachings of Jesus and following in his footsteps. The dismantling of the cult of Christianity might come full circle and redefine what following Christ actually means. Perhaps it looks closer to the opposite of white American evangelicalism and more like the ideologies they so quickly deem heretical. I will have various guests on this podcast. Some who have experienced a similar backstory to mine, some who have not. Some of these folks have arrived at similar conclusions to me, some have not. Things might get heated. Things might be civil. Some conversations and monologues might be verbose, you know, like this one is. And some may be more like a casual coffee conversation with a friend. Along the way, our definitions might get more refined. I'm sure I'll share many stories and anecdotes from my early life up to the days I record episodes. As various specifics are fleshed out, I hope that our honesty construction and reconstruction is helpful inspiring or at least somewhat entertaining if you wish to learn more about what's going on in my life or wish to purchase my book go to vernerbooks.com if you'd like to support this podcast please continue to listen follow share and consider supporting through the link in the show's notes. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can help me book guests, upgrade my production value, and start exciting projects. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep love in your life, hope in your heart, and searching in your soul.